Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast for History, the Journal of the Historical Association. This is episode one of our new series which is exploring different areas and branches of history and today we are focusing on public history. I'm joined today by the fantastic Professor Catherine Fletcher of Manchester Metropolitan University and she is a historian of Renaissance and early modern Europe. Many of you will know her latest book, Beauty and the Terror, as well as her earlier works, including a biography, The Black Prince of Florence. And her current projects include the trade book, Roads to Rome, which is looking at travel to Rome across two millennia, as well as an academic work in progress on early modern weaponry. Thank you for joining us today, Catherine. No, thanks. Great to be here. Okay, so thinking as I, I mean, I feel we kind of have to start off with the beauty and the terror, to be fair. I mean, the cover alone is a big enough draw. It's a fantastic looking book. And when you delve into it, there's so much that I think you've covered in such fascinating, engaging way. And I'm kind of thinking, what drew you to that topic, I suppose, but then also what drove you to write for a wider audience? Yes, I think the thing that I was that really prompted me to start with the beauty and the terror was that I'd been doing all this work. And as you mentioned in the introduction, I had been looking at the early history of firearms and a lot of my previous work on diplomacy in 16th century Italy and political culture. I kept coming to the back to the fact that there were a major series of wars going on through 16th century Italy, but they're often like not so much in the academic literature. Academics are very good at doing this stuff, but in the more popular presentation of the Italian Renaissance, you don't necessarily see people make the connection between the artwork that's iconic and famous, you know, whether that's the Mona Lisa or it's you know, like the Titian painting that I've got on the cover of the book or anything else. You don't make the connection between that world of art and the world of warfare. And nor do you necessarily make the connection between those worlds and what is going on with the t- uh, with religion at the time, with the Reformation and Counter-Reformation or Catholic reform, depending on how historiographically we want to pitch it. Um, and then a, there's another story that is often told separately from these two, which is the story of the early European empires and colonization and so forth. And so we had these four different historical narratives, which seemed to me to be very connected. They would keep coming up and popping up and relating to each other in my academic work, but they were very rarely put together in a way that was really accessible to general readers who I wanted to explain what I was talking about. It wasn't accessible either really in quite that way to the students that I was teaching. So some of this also came out of teaching experience. But that's really, you know, that that idea of trying to get past some of the more siloed popular history of this period was part of what I was trying to do with that book. I know when we think of that period, particularly for Italy, obviously we think of the borders and we think of the Medici and in a way all those areas crossover naturally as it is because obviously the Medici's are known for their artistic and religious patronage as well as the territorial disputes. Yes exactly they are and you know I don't want to claim that I'm the first person who's put this stuff together because clearly like I'm not. I think one of the things that perhaps doesn't often get put into some of the older school literature is the the angle on the empires and colonization the stuff that's actually only come out in very recent research about Mona Lisa's husband's involvement in the slave trade the stuff about the Medici and their connections into all this world in in Seville and the Florentines her in Lisbon and so on and so forth so that kind of aspect of the story I think was another different angle um, 
to bring into this history. But as you say, you know, there is this narrative out there that puts together the, the artistic greatness and then the sort of murderous poisoning kind of scheming bit of, of the Renaissance. But sometimes it's it's almost done in quite a glamorous way, like these guys are the, you know, the, the fictional gangsters of a mafia TV show. And I think that's also quite problematic when you were talking about real people's lives in historic conflict zones. And, you know, sometimes the, the, the TV glamour version of the Medici or the Borgias comes with its own sort of problems about communicating the reality of the past. I think that's a really good point, actually, thinking about the TV depictions, because I mean, I know you've spoken recently about the Leonardo series as well. And it's so exciting and fantastic that that is another avenue where obviously popular audiences get their history. I suppose it's a balancing act when you're writing a trade book as to how much you deal with what is already known to the public through TV series or through BBC articles, through documentaries. And like you say, bringing in that empire aspect in particular is something that doesn't get portrayed in TV shows. Did you find that there was anything you had to limit or cut out of the book? Well, I think one of the things you do, and, and actually this is I mean, very good practice generally in teaching history, I think is to try and start with where people are or where they might be when they're coming into reading your book. So there are certain names which are well known um, and not all was well known with any kind of level of, of historical fact attached to it. I mean, the worst one is probably Machiavelli because Machiavelli is su- is, has got such a particular reputation as a kind of you, you know, this idea of the, the scheme plotting bad guy that we use with when you talk about politicians being Machiavellian it just gets thrown around and it's got very little relationship to the actual um, you know work of the man himself but so we've got Machiavelli we've got Leonardo and Michelangelo people have a bit of a preconception of the Borgias and the Medici, as you said. And so when you are writing a book for general consumption, you can think about your readers coming in with some reference points around those big brand names of the Renaissance, if you like, and start from there and perhaps give a bit of what they expect and then give a bit of what they don't expect. And I think it, it is helpful to not to be completely unfamiliar with what you were telling your readers about to sort of say, look, you probably know a little bit about this already. Let's start there and then go on. And, you know, that's something that that I'm sure, you know, listeners who do or have taught in the past will be very familiar with that idea that you take what your students already know. Absolutely. When you were, I suppose we can have it as a two-part question. So what was one of the biggest problems you kind of faced when you were thinking about communicating this to the public? Is it you know, it's that idea that they've maybe got preconceptions or that there's stuff that's missing and you've got to think how to tackle that. And then expanding that, what are some of the biggest problems you think we as academics face more broadly when communicating our research with the public? I think that one of the things you often want in public history and in particularly in this type of trade writing is that you want human interest. You want stories about people, you want your readers to be able to engage with the people that they are reading about and that's each one of the, the quite a tricky line for historians to walk sometimes because obviously we want to be professional with sources we want to think about not writing things that we can't back up quite carefully with the documents but then of course we've got a documentary record which I'm sure I don't, I don't need to tell you is you know very limited 
in terms of its representation of certain types of life. So it's very biased towards elite individuals. It tells, it's often quite, you know, it focuses on the great men, particularly a lot of the Renaissance histories that are written at the time. They are about what the commanders were doing. Now, you know, there are some exceptions to that. And obviously you can work through and learn a lot about everyday life from trial records and so forth. But you also have to sort of deal with this issue that you've got a set of well-known sources, partly which are the things that would be most familiar to your readers. And there's a real question of how much extra do you try and put in about the lives they don't already know and what's and also what's feasible to do with a, a schedule of writing a trade book and the space that you've got and the word count. So there are quite a few challenges of working out how to deliver a type of narrative that might work in terms of human interest and colour while being um, you know, honest with the sources, but also trying to bring in voices that perhaps aren't necessarily heard as often as they might be. Yeah, and actually that kind of points us to another point of narrative where actually we don't have these wonderful sources that tell us, you know, life began at X and then it carries all the way around to their death. We get like the scandalous bits or we get the um, marriages or we get, like you say, perhaps wars and pinpoints. We don't always, we can't present fully fleshed biographies of all these people anyway. And I know obviously when you were talking about some of the wars, you pick up on some of the more notable commanders uh, that pop up in the book. And obviously they're there in the sources because of that. They're there because of the wars. And that's why we've got this record for them. Yeah. And up to a point, it's possible to find you know material about the ordinary lives of soldiers. There's some very good research on that. But it's it, I think one of the pressures in trade writing more generally is often to focus on characters to do that sort of thing that quite a little bit like novelists do say it's about the people and ideally you want people who are going to recur through your narrative and that's quite easy to do with some of the well-known people they can keep popping up and um, it's much less easy to do with a character who's unknown and you can go into the world some people do of you know essentially fictionalizing and making a pretend every man if you like who can reappear every so often and be your sort of average soldier or your average peasant or your average artisan or whatever but that is a stretch is not a thing that I wrote that I personally gone down whether I do in the future or not I guess is an open question but I think you it's a real issue around what the, the, the differences, the difference that the sources allow you to do in terms of that, um, you know, work of bringing people of the past to life. Absolutely. And how did you find the kind of process of writing for a different audience? I mean, you know, as academics, we have journal articles we write and we have books that we can write in chapters, which all are a different kind of writing in themselves, but actually writing for public history or a more popular audience. How did you kind of find that? I suppose I've got used to it. I've been doing it for a while. I did it. You know, my first book came out in 2012 for a general audience. And that was an adaptation of my PhD research, which was about the diplomacy behind Henry VIII's first divorce. So I think there are, I mean, there are some things that you routinely have to do differently. I mean, you can't rely on people knowing who anybody is. You have to explain when, uh, you, you know, the people that you're talking about turn up who they are. You can't 
assume that your readers necessarily have an understanding of concepts in the way that you might assume in a journal article that you know we could all agree on. As you know, there is a debate about how to characterize the Catholic Reformation, Counter-Reformation, etc. You can't say that. You have to, if you want to get into that, you have to tell your readers what that is. Or better still, find some way of conveying through the personalities of the time how different people were approaching the these different issues. So I think that you have to think about the different assumptions of what people are doing. You also have to think like, why are people reading this book? And a lot of the time people are going to read this book because they, they, they want to learn something, but also they want to be entertained. And I'm sure I mean, there are some academic journal articles that are really entertaining to read, but I wouldn't say it was as important a role of the book as it is with a trade book. You know, you don't want to keep people turning the pages. You want somebody, you know, somebody's bought this book as a gift, which is often the market for trade books is people's birthdays presents. You know, you want Auntie Jane or Uncle Joe to turn around and say, yeah, that was a great book you bought me. I really enjoyed it. That's not a, an outcome that you would necessarily be seeking in the same way for an academic study. So you do have to think about really bringing your readers along with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a different skill, like we say, obviously from novelists and so on, but it's still, like you say, spinning a tale and I don't mean this in terms of fabrication but obviously as you say in terms of finding that narrative that does draw it all together and particularly when you cover so much in uh, in the terror in particular that it's a lot to draw together and I think you know obviously it's success so far has spoken for itself in terms of how much everyone has enjoyed and got to grips with it I'm wondering you say you've drawn on previous experience from your book in 2012 and what were some of the main differences you found for getting a book published with trade press as opposed to academic, or perhaps those of us who are looking to branch into public history for the first time or think other people who might be thinking about trade works? So trade academic presses and the, the process is actually quite different. For the major trade publishers, you really need to get an agent first. That's the first step, is to write a proposal for your book that might appeal to an agent who will then represent you. So the big publishers don't take submissions directly like the academic publishers do. They you know, essentially use agents to filter out the poor quality submissions first, and then they, you know, they, they take submissions that way. But I think one of the things you are thinking about with pitching a trade book is you have to say, why this book? Why now? Um, you're thinking about what you know, how is this going to work? What exciting story is it telling that hasn't been told before or hasn't been told in this way before? Why are you the best qualified person to write this? And it's just some of those things you might also say to an academic publisher, but with academic publishers, very often you are sort of talking about the new knowledge that this is going to contribute um, and, you know, your original contribution, the rigor of your research, the perhaps the innovative methodology that you've applied, the new theoretical perspective that you're bringing to bear on a particular thing. Whereas with trade publishers, there's a slightly different relationship to what, what you are eventually presenting to them is a product that they are going to try and sell to a large number of members of the public. And they have to be convinced of its commercial value as well so you have to essentially help them think about 
how they would market the book. What does this book do that hasn't been done before? Why would people want to pick it up off the table in a bookshop and, you know, buy that for themselves, buy it as a present for somebody else? And that type of marketing is not something that you really need to do in quite the same way with an academic book where you are selling on the significance of the scholarship and it's primarily going to go to university libraries and to other expert researchers who will want it enough to have their own copy. I think the other thing with academic books as well is, like you say, it is that institutional buy-in that we get for a lot of them, whereas where you've got a much wider kind of popular audience to kind of draw to, it's really, again, drawing on that idea of narrative and bringing it together and thinking about how you would get it out there. Maybe now for some kind of like fun thoughts. So what have been some of your favourite moments or aspects of doing public history? What's been something you've really enjoyed either in the process of the books or other things? Because I know you did the new generation thinker scheme as well. Yeah, I mean, I really like just getting to talk to people about the work, hearing the questions. You get so many interesting questions when you're talking to people who've come from all sorts of random backgrounds um, with their own ideas about this period of history, with their own experience of traveling to all the sites. I mean, I love the, the whole side of, of traveling to, to see the places that I'm writing about. Of course, that's been very restricted these past couple of years, but I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to it. I'd say one of the things that I really enjoyed with the broader public history work, though, is, is actually doing the comedy stuff. I love doing You're Dead to Me. That was such a fun show to do. I've done a few smaller um, online and in-person historical comedy shows like History Show Off Books um, Show Off. These sort of things, I really enjoy finding the humour in some of the research that I do because I do work on some quite dark topics around war, around the history of weaponry and so on. And you don't come and be able to think about how do you put that across in an entertaining way? Can you make people laugh with it? And I loved, I did a, a little sort of set about the Borgias. I just sort of loved telling the story of um, Lucrezia Borgia who ends up running a cheese factory. And that was, <laughs> that was great fun. Yeah. And I think the main reason why we kind of do history is because we have that love for it ourselves and then in a way it's great if we can pass on that love to others and I think sometimes we want to get history out there because we've got new evidence we've got interpretations we've got ideas we want to present to people but actually we still want people to enjoy it you know that should be something they've got excited whether like you say that's through humour whether it's because they've experience something new enjoyed come across a new fact and or you know come across a name and and been like I want to find out more about this person now and go and dig into their lives themselves I think for those of us those of our academic listeners often know especially in university systems that we have to think about impact in a way you know how can we measure the impact of history and history is really difficult to kind of <laughs> measure the impact of because you know we don't know how people have changed their opinion or kind of their perspective in light of the evidence we've given to them because we don't go and do like follow-up surveys like you might do after you've walked around the natural <laughs> history museum or something be like what did you think of this exhibition so without kind of knowing necessarily unless people get in touch I mean what would it mean to you to like what kind of impact would you like to have made I mean ironically right public history like the sort of the sort that I do is really straightforward to measure impact because the income impact comes in the form of money and there is a bottom line and you can show an economic impact. You can show my book sold X number of copies for this amount of money in these territories. 
you can show where the economic impact comes around the world because you know where your book is exported to and translated to. You can track social media responses as well. So you can, you can do some work where you're looking at the way that people comment on your book in social media review sites. So you can look at what they say on Goodreads. You can look at what they say on Amazon. You can look at what they say on you know, Twitter or TikTok or whatever it happens to be. And so, I mean, actually some of that measuring impact when you've got a book that is out there with a publicity machine behind it on websites where people are able to comment on what they thought of the book it's not that hard to collect it it's actually I think a lot of the the public the types of public history that are much harder to follow up on are those sort of community projects those things where there's not necessarily a space for people to write about and where obviously that you haven't got the commercial impact case that you can make when you were doing public history that starts to involve sums of money changing hands. So there's an odd sort of thing about how this type of history works in terms of the rules in universities about what constitutes impact. You can very easily say, yeah, of course it's got impact. Here are the, here are the figures. But yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I'm not solely interested, like, in just, justify my impact on the basis that it makes, it, it makes money. And I think, you know, making it a bit easy, great to hear from readers about how the book has changed their perceptions. It's great to see, you know, people taking work that I've done in the past and using it to inform their own creative works. So one of the really nice things coming off The Black Prince of Florence, which came out in 2016, is now to see some of the creative work that's being developed around it. So um, Daphne Di Cinto, who you may have seen, uh, appeared in Bridgerton, has directed a short film called Il Moro, which draws um, to some extent, not absolutely directly, but, but uses some material from my research on Alessandro de Medici to inform a short film. And that's just won an award at the Fabrique du Cinema in Rome, which is very exciting. So hopefully we'll be seeing more of that soon. And then we have um, as well City of Vengeance, which is a historical crime thriller that again draws on some of the material about Alessandro de Medici's life, which I wrote in the book. And so, yeah, it's fabulous to see that creative impact of the research as well as the economic impact as well as the the broader public discussion about it that's really exciting to me to, to to get to see what happens with you know with that material absolutely and I think you've actually just talked about the range of different impacts different things that people can take away from it because like you say it's very rewarding to be able to talk to people and I like say either read the comments or get the responses on Twitter or however else people choose to get in contact or you know if you go and give a talk and someone comes up to you and be like oh actually I hadn't thought about this before and it's good to see but actually say seeing that there's now films coming out that are based on that are used utilizing your work to go forward is obviously really exciting I think as historians we're always glad to see one of our figures kind of get more limelight and being like yes now their story's going even further than um we thought before thank you very much for joining me today to dig through some bits of public history and think about its usages but also just how we academic historians can think about using public history and think of how we work as public historians how we can engage people and think about it in a different way and of course thank you for talking about some of your work with us as well and for those of our listeners who have not picked up Beauty in the Terror yet I will put the link in the chat when I post this and thank you again Catherine thank you very much